welcome to Adapt to the Past. My name is Adrian Mills, and I am joined as ever by my good friend and co-host... Graham Ruddings. In case you don't know, this is a podcast that focuses primarily on games that were released for the Commodore 64, whilst also taking a brief look at what was going on in the UK back in the 1980s. There were thousands of games released for the Commodore 64, so to bring order to this chaos, we are using the magazine Zap64 as a monthly guide for the games to focus on. One last thing, I would hasten to say that we are in no way affiliated with Zap64 itself. One last thing is that there are a couple of swear words that do crop up every now and again. We're not the sweariest of podcasts, I have to say, but please be warned that the odd one will slip through. Thanks. So, in this episode, we will be looking at the games reviewed in issue 4 of Zap64, which was the unusually cool but bright month of August 1985. Graham. What exactly can we expect in this episode? So, in this episode, 8-bit match fishing. Does it get any more exciting than that? I'm not so sure that it does. We've also got squirrels jumping up and down platforms. It might be good, it might be bad, you'll have to find out. And of course, there's a gold medal game missing its gold medal, and it makes our fists explode with rage. All to come. All to come. Awesome stuff. So let's get on then. Uh, our first section, we're going to look at uh, three games here. The first one being the cover game um, for this issue of Zap, and that game is Beachhead 2. So Beachhead 2 is the sequel to, uh, you may have guessed, Beachhead, uh, which we did look at, I think, in our episode zero, uh, and I think we were quite positive about We quite liked it. It was good. This is a sequel to that and kind of uh, sort of goes on as well from Raid Over Moscow, which was the game they did in between the two Beachhead. So we can see the Carver brothers, which is was it Bruce and what's his face? Bruce and Roger, is it? That's correct. Um, Bruce and Roger Carver. They're sort of they're they're clearly getting a lot better at what they're doing um, because there is quite a you know an evolution from uh, the original Beachhead. I think in this one, just to talk about the cover, the cover for Zap was uh, did feature Beachhead Two. Pretty boys' own adventure stuff is what I've written here. Yeah, totally. Is that it? Looks like a cover for that Commando magazine, that comic. It does. Yes, there's a there's a there's a, there's a close one. A, a war torn American GI got lots of ripped clothes and stuff, and he's throwing a grenade while down below him some some guys screaming and there's it's very Oliver Frey and it's it's you know it's uh, it's okay it's it's a good I'm, an, an okay Oliver Frey is still excellent but it's not I don't think it was anything to to, to write home about it's it's very I think you're right it looks like a commando whatever it looks like he's holding a screwdriver in his teeth <laughs> I didn't notice that is he yeah or is that a bullet oh, whistling past his, his teeth it just looks like he's holding a holding a, 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 a Phillips oh. screwdriver in his teeth <laughs> well you never know I think it's a dagger to uh, you never know when you need to sort of you know unscrew a plug the two, the two guys at the bottom look like they've had better days Yes, there's blood shooting up and everything. It's pretty all-action cover, isn't it, that? But it is. It is. A couple of helicopters. There's a grenades lobbing. There's some planes and stuff. It's very it's very much, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a war game. War game cover. But it's good. It's, you know, like I said, Oliver Frey good. He's still excellent. Yeah, totally. And I think, um, you know, th- this game did lend itself to the cover, not the gold medal game, which we'll talk about later on. Uh, Beecher 2 got a Sizzler. And probably rightly so, I think. Uh, it's a really good game. It follows the same kind of structure as the original Beachhead and Raid of a Moscow in the way that the Carver games, those Carver games do. Almost like four different games in one. Well, actually, let's let's roll back a little bit, sort of thing, because I think the bigger, I suppose the big evolution for this one is it's two-player. You can play it single-player against the Dictator. You are the Allies versus the Dictator. Dictator of what? I don't, I don't know. I don't know the story behind it. Who knows? Uh, if you are the Allies, you are dropping men down from uh, a helicopter to run behind a series of walls, whereas the Dictator, you have an endless supply of gun turrets. 
at the bottom, which you control to try and shoot these men falling down from the sky. Another big evolution, should we say? Do we want to mention the speech here? Follow me, man. You can't hurt me. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's this point in time. They all seem to have it for some reason. I think the thing is, I noticed, especially in some of the games we will talk about today, speech is becoming a bit of a, a de facto sort of addition into a lot of games right now. And Beecher 2 is, you know, has some iconic um, bits of uh, speech that uh, as soon as I heard them on replaying it sort of thing, I was like, oh, I remember that. That scream. The, oh, the, the noises, the, the, the some other bits and bobs. Yeah, so the, the first level is kind of this. The good thing, the clever thing it does is, is it's asymmetric to player. You're not both doing yes. the same thing, which yes. is only for one level you're doing that. You get scored. Which is kind of weird sort of thing. So the whole game is built around who can get the most score from blowing each other up and destroying each other. So not only do you have this kind of story of these... Um, the allies trying to take down the dictator sort of thing. This is all score-based. It's quite it's quite advanced in quite a number of ways, this. There's quite a lot going on here sort of thing, and I think that really adds to the replayability. It's just a really good two-player game, I think, because of that asynchronous play style. The second screen is quite similar in that one person plays... Oh, actually, the allies this time play the, play the gun turret, and you have a series of... POWs, I think, walking across the screen walking very wounded. slowly. The walking wounded walking very slowly across the screen whilst a tank, a tractor, a, a man who throws down blobs and, a, and a, man, a man in a portable manhole cover uh, try and kill him. <laughs> uh, and you have to shoot. And they're just endless. They're just endless tanks, endless manhole cover men, endless men from the roofs, endless tractors as your man slowly plods across the screen. Um, and you've got to protect them. Or you can shoot them. Tactically, you can shoot them, which is nice to stop them, um, which is quite good. And you get a great little bit of speech there where he tells you not to shoot him. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> well, look, it's just important to note, this is not a weaponized tractor, like a farm <laughs> vehicle. It, it is an actual military vehicle that <laughs> it looks like runs a along the bottom. It runs along the bottom. It's got it's it's, it's got it's tractor. tractor. It's not a tractor. It's actually got it's a it's a military vehicle. It highly resembles a tractor. Yeah, it's odd, really. Actually, that like, particular level I find a little bit weird amongst all yeah, the others. But um, that's the one that's I think it's the weakest one. But probably, but it's, it's, you know, again, good in two player. Um, but the third level um, has most in common, I would say, with the Raid of a Moscow um, original beachhead, where you fly. Um, a helicopter, and you can choose how many POWs you put into the helicopter, and you have to fly it vertically upwards. Kind of becomes a little bit of a vertical shoot 'em up, sort of avoiding flying through, you know, gaps in walls and shooting tanks and all that kind of stuff. And you got to try and escape with as many POWs as you can. And then the last level, the classic last level, sees you and the dictator face off on a one-on-one knife throwing contest across a chasm, um, <laughs> where you move like crab-like up and down um <laughs> a series of uh what, what, sort of small piers on a on a, above, a, above a lake or some kind of in some kind of cave or fishing pegs <laughs> <laughs> or what or fishing pegs they look a bit fishing, like fishing pegs fishing pegs they do yes um and you, you can throw your knives straight across or you can bend them up or down and the, the whole point is to try and hit each other four times and then you you fall into the water and it's the best of nine rounds, like a good baseball game. It's <laughs> 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 a, a long old take, fight, that. Yeah, dictator taken down via baseball rules, which is how I think all dictators should be taken down. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it is a really good game. Um, it is still fun. It does. It, I think it does go on a little bit too long in some sections. POW one sort of thing where they're walking across. There's twenty of them to walk across the screen. They're a bit slow. 
I mean, they're wounded, yeah. so I get it. But by the end of it, sort of thing, you're just letting them die <laughs> just to get yeah. on to the next section. Yeah. Or, or I was. Overall, as a package, this is a real. This is another one of those step ups for the C64. I think. Uh, yeah, this I is agree it's with start, that. Start, starting to show its, you know, technical chops a little bit. I think here, where people who are getting really getting to grips, you know, this. I don't know if the Carver Brothers had anything before Beachhead, but this is like, you know, they're third of this kind of game and, and they're really showing, you know, what they can do. What is it, you know, I'm, I'm guessing getting positive tones from you. Do you agree or? Yes, I agree. I think it's a great, to, it's a multiplayer game off the bat. Um, and there's two reasons why I'd say that. One is because two player is great fun and it's just a head to head silly battle with silly sort of stages and yeah, and the thing is that you can remember you in that you can select any of these stages to play. You don't have to sort of go through them as such. You can just sort of play them if you want to. So it's a game that's it has quite a lot of fun to it. Um and so you can sort of go for your favourite section. You don't have to work your way through all four if you don't want to. Which is great because I think the first section's got one too many walls. <laughs> and yeah. by the way, the other reason that you'd only want to play this multiplayer is because if you're playing the computer AI, you ain't gonna live long. Because that AI is brutal. I mean, I, I I managed to get one guy past the first machine gun nest on the walls level. I didn't get any medics across because it is impossible to get the medics across uh, and you're playing AI. It's just just insanely hard. But it's part of the fun of it, really. It's The trouble is with that is I think you hit the nail on the head. With the exception of the sort of shoot 'em up level, they all go on a bit too long. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, so, so even with multiplayer and two-player, it can get a bit tiring. You know, and there is some tactics to the the wall level. So, you know, do I go left? Do I drop them here? And do I, do I, you know, and obviously the turret takes its time to shoot from left to right. Less so, I think, in the second level where you've got the medics coming across because you just feel you're, you're overwhelmed against the odds against mm-hmm. that medic getting across because you've got the wall, the guy dropping the, the, the bombs, whatever they are, the bricks, whatever they are from the wall. <laughs> you've got the guy leading the traps. You've got the tank. Um, and then you've got, and they all do move at different speeds and everything else. So you've got to take that into account. But, I just feel like the odds are against you, so the fun of that doesn't last so long. I think the best level in it, for me, is the knife-throwing one, because it's the most fun, it's got the most speech, mm. and also when you die, you get that kind of nice scream when he falls into the water. And the animation throughout the entire game is exceptionally good. So even mm-hmm. though the graphics are quite small, the animation of them running and climbing over walls and throwing the knives, it's actually it's quite good. Is it fun? It's Yes, it's definitely a good laugh with another player. I mean, we played this a lot, right? It's yeah, certainly more fun than Beachhead 1. And it's certainly more fun than Raid Over Moscow, whatever it was called, the second yeah, one. Yeah. So it's certainly more fun than that. I just wonder how long it could last in a similar way that when we described Spy versus Spy, we said this is great two-player, but the trouble with these games is they rely on another player being present and you can't play them forever. More than Spy versus Spy, it gets a bounce a little bit more better for single-player. I mean, even the games you know, games with Lorded like Pit Stop 2 really shine in, in two-player. I think most split-screen games do. So... I, I completely understand what you're saying. I think there's in there's just just there's just enough variety um, in in this one to to merit it a, a little bit higher. And I think that th- that that really helps. But it, it's its biggest thing is that it's it's I, I think you probably wouldn't notice the length of the levels if you're just shouting at each other and you know killing each other. And I think in it could have been when you're playing single player, you know, ten people walking across the the, the bloody open ground would have been a better mix rather than twenty. And so, you know, but this is, you know, 1985 C64. P- people are learning what what is acceptable and oh, what people are doing. And I think, I think you're right. Um, it's variety just about is the payoff, really. So you've got four games in one, really. 
Because the in prior to this, each one of those games would have been just a game on its own. With some in some instances, we've seen games that are far worse with far less to offer for far mm-hmm. less for far more money. So this is actually quite nice in that respect. My only feeling is that um, yeah, aside from that sort of double player um, and on one screen, as we're going to see later on with with another game in this in the list that we've got, there's other games that do that two player thing a lot better. And I think you know we we play. I do remember us playing it quite a lot many yeah, years yeah. after it yeah. after it came out we was this was still a staple of ours because yeah i think we we mainly played that knife throwing level yeah yeah that's um, why i say it's the best one out of the four levels yeah. I, by a mile that's more i don't know why it's the most fun i think it, because there is a variety of challenge in it you're not just shooting aimlessly i know it sounds daft to say that you're just throwing knives at each other but there is a little bit of tactic in there mm, you do there that is. little crap the crab shuffle has to you know they go <laughs> at a certain speed the knives throw at a certain speed you can alter the angle and there is a bit of ducking and diving as it's it's simple and yet it is a it is fun beachhead 2 whichever mm. way you look at it and like i say some of those some games like that i i hadn't played beachhead 2 for well probably the last time i played it was with you when we were a lot younger yeah probably so when i loaded it up again i was straight back into the zone with it didn't yes. take me any time to get back into that i was in that world in that game and really laughing at the speech because it's pretty good <laughs> even though it's you know it's you know i mean for its time it's really incredible this games with with far worse speech than that and the We'll find out in this episode. We will, and also, (laughs) and also, it's worth noting that um, this was one of those little things. And at this time, um, it was one of those little things that was set in the C sixty four. As you said, technically, it was starting to show that it could do things that the others couldn't, because there was no chance on this, uh, and no chance that the Sinclair Spectrum was going to ever be able to have that much speech in it of that quality. It just didn't have the out and out didn't have the ability to do it. It's, it's 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 fun, but yeah, I I couldn't quite understand what the um on the knife throwing one. I just moved up and down, and every time I tried to move left or right, it did that weird dodge, bend, <laughs> squat yeah. thing, and I could yeah. never. Is that a, is that a dodge? Am I supposed to be ducking? I don't know what that is, but um, I did like also. I really like we speaking about the animation. Um, if you got to, I'm not sure if you got that far. If you got one men down to the bottom on the first level, and you went the one you controlled, you could run out. Um, throwing the grenade, oh, throw the grenade, the, the, yeah, yeah. It's a really good bit of animation that throwing the grenade. It's yeah, like, yeah, um, really good. It's a bit, it's a bit, um, it's a bit impossible mission. Um, yeah. in that, in that they really like the animation on that, so it's a bit slow. But it's it's well, it's it's well, it's well animated. It's nice, it, but I think that's just those the Carver Brothers sort of thing. They, as we'll see with later Carver Brothers games, which you know the, the, what they basically go on to become famous for. Yeah, I think I think after this. Um, so I think Beachhead Two does does stand up. I think I think you're right. Put two people together on this, and this would just be a. I think it'd still be a, a, a good laugh. I think you'd get quite a lot of enjoyment out of this. Um, yep. And uh, you know, we did for, like I said, quite a few years um, after this came out, we were still playing this. So let's move on uh, to our second game. It's one that a lot of people know, I think. Um, this is Action Biker, or Clumsy Collins Action Biker, or Clumsy Collins Action Biker, or Action Biker, Clumsy Collins, Starring Clumsy, I don't know. There's something to do with skips and bikes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the full, full proper title for this game. I'm surprised they could um, fit it on them tiny cassettes, to be fair. It must have been no, a real struggle. Absolutely. But this was 199, and, you know, this was... Oh, Graham, you, you go. You you say what's what's clumsy, clumsy Collins' action biker about? Um, so you are clumsy Colin, 
And my take on this was you are riding a bike around collecting things. I didn't get much further into it than that, <laughs> has to be said. Because I figured that's what it was. It reminded me of this. There seems to be a few games where you're on insert vehicle that's rotationally controlled, driving around a map. It made me, it gave me the EBGBs because it made me think a little bit of um, give my regards to Broad Street and other games of that kind of over the top city view, driving around, collecting things. It was okay. I found the map was quite small, really. It, it kind of looks big, but it's small. The bike's tiny. It was. I found it a bit difficult to control. I felt like I was just wandering around a bit, with a bit of, a bit aimlessly, really. Had nice. Mm-hmm. It had a nice Rob Hubbard score in it, which I think is its real one of its big selling points. And it is good value for it, what it is. But with Mastertronic games, it was always a roulette. No, you you buy it for one ninety nine, mm-hmm. and you know it might be great, it might not be. Uh, that was the one ninety nine gamble. And for this one, for me, I never got it at the time. Um, because I've just I, I I wasn't into that kind of motorbikey kind of stuff. Um, so mm-hmm. for me, it was a driving collector mall, collect them up, I think. But even then, I did collect things when I was replaying it, and it didn't seem to make any difference to what I was doing. I just seemed to be <laughs> driving around collecting things, and I thought, well, and it's quite fast when you go full speed. It's a nippy game, you know. It's not like it's, it's you're slowly chugging around the screen. It moves at a fair pace, but that's to its disadvantage, really, when you can't control it. Um, but that could have been the fact that I was using a more modern controller. I didn't have a joystick or a, you know, so there could have been some limitations around that, which may be what was preventing me from getting the full experience. Did I enjoy it? Not really. It was all right, I suppose. But had I paid one ninety nine for it, I might have been able to write it off as a kind of a gamble. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't have had me coming backwards and, and coming back to it many times, I think, even for that music, because even by Rob Hubbard standards, it's early days at this point. It is early days. I mean, I did have it back. Uh, we did have it. We did buy it. My brother, we bought it from uh, what was uh, Fenwick's back in the uh, in, in the shops. Fenwick's, my gosh! Yeah, absolutely, it's taken it back. It's taken it back a while. People will know, have no idea what Fenwick's is, but it's a uh, four boys as far. It was a local news agent, basically that sold cheap two quid games on a rack um, <laughs> in our local shops. So we did buy this, um, and no, uh, the it, it controlled exactly the same back then with a joystick. It was no oh, difference. Oh, right, okay. Um, so that's a problem and, then. Uh, and I think there's a weird thing. I mean, it, you know, this does, weirdly enough, actually, does bypass our genuine dislike for isometric stuff as well because it actually works okay in this. Is it isometric? Um, yeah, it's isometric view, isn't it? I don't remember. Why do I not remember it's, it being it's, isometric? Does that sound memorable? It was for me. Right, open, open up, open up, have a look at the screenshot. It's definitely isometric. Yeah, no, 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 I believe you. I just don't, I just don't remember <laughs> um, it that way. But Yeah, so because he, he scrolls, you know, top, it, it, you know, if you go up the road, the road runs sort of bottom left to top right. Yeah, yeah, that's and you right. See it yeah, from the, yeah, it back, does, right. yeah. So it is an isometric view. And normally yeah. we don't like that sort of thing. No. But I think it kind of does work here, but it's kind of stuck in some weird no man's land of, like you said, sort of thing, you can't go fast because you can't steer. But then again, so it has this kind of realism to it. Because obviously, you know, if you do drive a bike very fast, you can't corner very quickly. You have to slow down. But then that becomes no fun because you just end up trawling around it at very, very slow speed. And then partway through it, you get the gearbox, which allows you to slip between low and high gear, which then allows you to accelerate quicker. Yeah. So you never want to accelerate apart from to do a do a couple of little jumps. And so it's, it's kind of weirdly stuck in this, doesn't really know what it wants to be, whether it's this sort of lighthearted jaunt around this sort of little you know with a roller coaster and a building site and some tricks and traps and stuff like that it's neither one thing nor the other and and that's a i think that's to its detriment really it couldn't the jaunty music and the fact that it's you know for those who don't know clumsy colin was um there's a you know there's a brand of crisp over here called uh skips 
um, which you know are, are basically just air in a crisp form. Um, yeah. because, um, because I they don't fill you up or anything. Um, and so he was the mascot for them. And so this is some weird, you know, product linkage thing. I don't know whether someone had built this and Mastertronic had got the license and will put Clumsy Colin on it because he rides a motorbike and this is a motorbike because Clumsy Colin is nowhere to be seen in this game. Right. Um, and so it's some weird hybrid. And, you know, Clumsy Colin was this kind of fun, kind of weird character. But this is almost... It's not it's not sim-like, but it's almost sim-like. So it's... Yeah, you find yourself going really slowly around tight areas of the map just to collect a glowy thing that you're not sure why, and then turning around really slowly and really slowly driving out. Yeah, that's my that was my that was my mo was just I I went around that game slow. Yeah, and then your mind you're wondering where the next bit is because the next object doesn't appear until you've collected the last one. It can be randomly anywhere on the map, and there's no map. Um, There's no you know there's no overview of the map so you're just driving around until you see something glow i mean it, it might have been a quirk of my version and i don't know if this happened to you but when i hit water <laughs> the sound chip sounded like it was screaming <laughs> so it just emitted like a, sh- a shriek which which was difficult to contend with um i was never i was i was never going to collect enough of those pieces because there's a, there's a final race i think once you get enough of the component parts i I've yeah. never, i don't know where they were i never found them and i've kind of crashed a lot and and what Obviously, in the end, I got tired of the scream whenever I hit something. Mm. I'm feeling it was it was meant to be like a crash sort of boom sound, but there could have been a quirk in the in the version I was playing. Anyway, it kept screaming at me, um, which was unnerved at best. Yeah, visually, sort of thing, it's like a 3D Kickstart, I guess, in sort of its simple visuals. It, it's all right. I mean, it's it's nothing. It's it was worth two quid. Is this a video game based on a bag of crisps? Yeah, absolutely. But there you go. That's what I mean. It's the it's the tenuous. Ten, he was a he was a biker. And I think that's the that's the link. To be a fly on the wall when the game designer got that challenge. It's a bag of crisps. Make a game with that, will you? He's like, oh, okay, I'm, do, do I have to use the crisps? What? No. <laughs> no, eat he rides them. a bike. That'll do. <laughs> he rides a bike. What's it got to do with crisps? Nothing at all. I had a friend once who... Um, not a friend once. I didn't have, I have many friends over the years. Um, <laughs> um, but he, uh, he uh, ate a half a bag of skips and then put them down once and said he was full. <laughs> to this day, I don't know what he was full of because there's nothing in those things. <laughs> yeah, apparently you could um, send <laughs> ten crisp packets into the uh, to KP, and they would send you a copy of the game for free. Well, it's not free; it's cost you oh, ten. That's nice of them. Whatever ten packets of skips cost at the time, I don't know. Well, consult the stock Any- exchange to find out what the uh, <laughs> the skips price was. And it's just, you're driving the price of skips up with this crazy promotion. <laughs> Oh dear! Right, yeah. So two quid was got you some obscure, tenuous product placement link. A lot of these Mastertronic games fun for half an hour. So yeah, en- enough fun that one ninety nine felt like it wasn't being ripped off. And let's be fair, arcade games generally you got about eighteen seconds for twenty odd p or whatever it was. So yeah, you know, it represented a better value for money than that. So that was my pitch yeah. to my parents at the time. <laughs> so yeah, action biker, not too bad. Yes. Okay. So let's move on to our third and last game of this section. Let's let's just let's be let's be careful with that word game. Okay. Just, <laughs> okay. For, for this In, one uh, especially. <laughs> for for this experience, um, <laughs> and it is an experience. This is Jack Charlton's match fishing. Okay. Jack Charlton, as you may, as some of you may know, some of you may not know, 
um, was a footballer from the 60s and 70s. He was part of the World Cup, you know, the English World Cup winning team in 1966. Uh, he went on to manage many football teams and he also had a TV show, Jack Charlton's Match Fishing, which this is what this is, I think this is what this is based on. Uh, he became quite big in the fishing world. This isn't great. <laughs> This is <laughs> that's a, that is an understatement and a half. This is not great. So it's, this starts off. I mean, my first note says, the, "I mean, the flashing Jack Charlton name spelt quality to me," um, and it's probably the only excitement <laughs> I felt during this entire moment moments where I was playing this. So this this game it assumes you've got some fishing knowledge because it um, it's asking you about stuff, bait and tackle and swimming quality. I'm like, what, what the hell is this yeah. talking about? Reels. Yeah. <laughs> and you can swap your reel. And it's like, I, I, I don't know. Is one better than the other? What's going on? I thought, oh, okay, this might be quite in-depth. There might be some going on here. And then the game started, um, and I was faced with a single bitmap picture and eight numbers, and nothing ever happened. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's, let's, let's just let's take this journey a little slower. <laughs> I can't because I don't want to. there isn't really much to this. I mean, I agree with you. Number one, this, this game, that, that intro sequence, I say intro sequence, that selection screen of various options is confusing for anybody who isn't a fisher, person who's into fishing, mm-hmm. match fishing. So let's, for the get-go, if you're buying this game for any reason other than being someone who's into fishing, you're not going to have a good time. So, so you go through all those options. I don't think it makes a blind bit of difference when you're playing the game what reel, <laughs> what line you've had, because it's represented in exactly the same way. And you generous when you said bitmap image. It was borderline excruciating to look at graphic, where you do have the, you know, the the fun of the game and it, it, before that there's that there's that crazy screen that comes up with the writing saying to get the best out of this game play yeah. it with your tv and your hands under the table <laughs> and i'm looking at it, what what crazy game is this so that when so that when you get a fish when you get a bite on your fishing line and when you do get a bite you have to slam the number of your fishing peg quickly to activate the whole next sequence of imperceptibly difficult whatever you have to do because you have to wind the reel and get, catch the fish and hook it in on door. Did you get that far? So before you get to that, yeah, I actually I managed to get th- to the next oh, screen. I thought mine had frozen because I sat there looking at a screen forever no. and nothing flashed. <laughs> yeah, this, that's fishing. That, but that's, that's fishing. I was th- thinking, I was thinking, so I was thinking, how long do I give this? Uh, how you know? At what point is my com- <laughs> is my computer stopped? Because I don't know. Because there's nothing moving on that screen and there's only one of me playing. So I'm thinking, has <laughs> the game frozen? Has it crashed? Nothing ever happened. No, you see, what you've described there is match fishing. <laughs> Generally speaking. I've been fishing. It was so, more fun than this. So, I mean, I mean, that's my question was, you know, how do you make fishing more boring? Take away the fish <laughs> and the pond and just stare at a screen <laughs> until something yeah. flashes. That isn't no. fishing. For me, that's not fishing. Fishing is about being, I mean, I'm not a person. Who, I don't, I've, I've been fishing many years ago with my dad and like a lot of kids mm-hmm. do. That was the extent of my fishing. I've never been one to go out and buy match rods and super reels, and and I know not what I'm talking about now. For me, it was just a, it was you know throw a, a hook with a maggot on in the water when the end of a fishing line and wait, mm-hmm. which I think is sums up fishing. You know that's the TLDR of fishing, and some people like that, but I think part of that is being outside and outdoors and and all of that, and probably swigging cans of beer. If anything, if any of the rec- the, the fishing people are, were they called fishing people? What do you call people who are fishing? They can't be fishing people. Anglers. Thank you for that. Um, when you, when I, when I, if I'm walking the dog and um, I'm going, we've got a nearby fishing pond and they're, they're fishing people. The anglers are there angling, fishing away. Um, and I guess for those people, it's a nice respite from whatever world, mm-hmm. busy world they're in. And I get all that. That's fine. This is not that. This is staring at a TV screen. Even if you do it multiplayer, I can't imagine a world where that is exciting when you're just sat next to your friend 
staring at something <laughs> intently, waiting waiting for something to flash. And when it does, you, you hit your button and then you get taken to the next screen, which is a image of a pond, side view image of a pond, where a fish trundles up towards your fishing hook in the water. You've got your line. And at that exact moment, I, you have to press either the space bar or the button on your joystick to catch and snap the fish. But I never managed to do that. It just kind of, the line just kind of sank and the fish just got away every time. So I never actually caught a you had fish. The wrong bait, um, real. Well, it, it could have been any of those options, and then so I, I thought, okay, I'm going to try and go back to the screen and select some different options. When I went back to that screen, it said initializing. Yep. And it took about five minutes to clear all the previous settings out, which made me think this is written in Basic because only Basic is that slow. Mm-hmm. And if it is written in Basic, that means the entire game is crammed into about 30k, really, mm-hmm. because a large chunk of that memory was taken up with Basic. So if it's, is it a triumph of a 32k, 30k basic game? No, because it was still rubbish. <laughs> I think I think everything that Jack Charlton said about that game was kind and a lie. I didn't even think anyone who's into fishing would go to the extent of buying a computer and then a game and thinking that, you know, what if anyone who's into fishing, they would just go fishing. Even the, even the bad weather doesn't put them off, does it? I've seen mm-hmm. them out there in snow, hail, you name it. So to think that there's no fun in... This game, I don't, I didn't get where the fun was ever. It's not like even trying trying these different reels would make a difference because it, it didn't do anything. To me, I, I likened this to what we said. This sounds alarmingly similar to what we said about Glider Pilot because yes. Glider Pilot, you know, the thrill of Glider Pilot is being up in the air, flying around, seeing the view, yep. you know, no noise, very quiet, and that enjoyableness of it. But you know, being out in the in the countryside and you know having that thing, the the one thing you don't want from uh, flying a glider is to have it represented on a C64, which, which, you know, really can't do it justice. This is the same sort of thing. You go yep. fishing for the the feel of, you know, the water, the nice, the ambience, the restfulness, the peacefulness, you know, and that moment of, like, oh, caught a fish. Yep. And if you catch a fish, you catch a fish. If you don't, yep. you don't. Most anglers that I know yep. sort of thing don't care. They just, you know... Yeah. Um, they just want to go out and enjoy it, but all huddled around. And, and this, this can have eight players. Imagine eight of you huddled around a table, around a small portable telly, having waiting to press the button. Not only eight players, but you can set how long you want these matches oh. to be. So that you could set that for, to be six hours. So we're going to play six. We're going to go fishing for six hours. Oh, that sounds great. When are we going? We don't have to go anywhere, son. <laughs> sit down. Sit down at the table and stare at that TV. You wait. The fish will come to you. Well, do you know what? Somebody somewhere should yeah should have said this is a you know. On the list of things we're never going to simulate with computers, let's just add gliding and fishing to the list right off the bat, and that that conversation yeah, never not happened. until we get some decent processing power, or make just fishing a mini game within another game. It's, fishing's fun in Zelda and playing games like that, but but because yeah. it's a little mini game, it's a diversion. It's not the whole yeah. point of sitting yeah. eight of you around a table. Yeah, that's that's what baffled me. With your hands under the table, remember. <laughs> Don't break the rules of, uh, of computer fishing and have your hand anywhere near that keyboard. Keep that well under the table, which uh, you know it's just it conjures up a strange image which incidentally is on the front of the advert. So if you ever want to wonder what that looks like, as we'll see yeah. later, the advert features it with a <laughs> hawking, freakish Jack Charlton. Let's, let's leave that to later. Hovering over them. Uh, but yes, either way, it's uh, this was just a simulation too far. Pointless games. Why make yeah. those? But it's a cash-in. And it, it still is that lingering cash-in mentality. Yes. Yeah, it is. Anyway. Yeah, well, for me, it's a bit of a switch off and a snooze. Yeah, this is, this to, is a, you know. a bad, bad idea. Really bad. So, no. Bad game. Um, right, so I think that ends our first three our first three games. Beat Ted 2, Clumsy Call and Action Biker under Charlton's Match Fishing. In a moment, we'll be looking at what was going on in the UK in August 1985. 
All right, welcome back. So what was going on in the UK in August 1985? Actually, it's not a lot. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Um, I know. <laughs> we say this we every this? time. Well, there is a talking point. There is something <laughs> I do think it'd be a bit of a laugh to actually have a talk about. 13th of August, the first UK heart lung transplant is carried out. Goodness. At the Harefield Hospital in Middlesex. And the patient is... Three-year-old Jamie Gavin. Oh my gosh. More young people in the news. August 27, Mary Jo Fernandez, at 14 years and eight days old, becomes the youngest player to win at the US Tennis what? Open. I know. And t- typically, they beat in English. They beat in- England's <laughs> Sarah Goma, 6-1, 6-4 in a first-round match. Okay, yeah. So that was the, uh, obviously, tennis and heart transplants. But the main talking point was that uh, the Sinclair C5 ceased production after just seven months and fewer than 17,000 units. And for those that don't know, the Sinclair C5 was the vehicle of the future. It was the vehicle of something, all right? <laughs> do you want to what, what was the C5? You tell it us. Was a, it was, a, it was a vehicle. It was meant to be, um, it was pitched and meant to be a eco-friendly, travel around the city, um, easy to park, easy to manoeuvre vehicle, battery powered, but you could pedal it as well, I think, a bit of both. So it's essentially a, Pedlo, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, with a fiberglass body, okay. three wheels, quite compact in size, meant to be for those city business people that didn't want to have to, you know, get in a car, drive around all the congested um, streets of London trying to get where they want to be or cities. Um, cause, mm-hmm. Because for countryside, this is useless, really. I thought it was like an egg. It's yeah, like an egg with a bit cut out. Yeah, like a, a, point, like a pointy egg with one wheel at the front yeah. and two at the back. That was the Sinclair C5, and it was pitched as an answer to things like congestion and things like, um, you know, increasing fuel charges and a bit of an eco-environment-friendly thing. But it came from Sir Clive Sinclair, who was, apart from anything else, of course, the inventor of the Sinclair Spectrum and the ZX81 and the ZX80, um, mm-hmm. and also, believe it or not, the, the first, the world's first small micro-television. Um, so the Sinclair Micro-Tele-TV, I'm not sure what the official name of that was, but he was an inventor, a British inventor, and... Gave the world amazing things like the Sinclair Spectrum. I mean, I'm not a big fan of that particular computer, but there's no denying it was a great home computer for the masses. Um, so there was a little bit of that kind of um, thinking in the C5 mm-hmm. is that this was designed for, it was meant to be an affordable alternative to just getting around a bit easier and not, you know, and all of those things. Unfortunately, they mm-hmm. were genuinely dangerous on the roads because of the large scale lorries, trucks, vans, and cars that were driving 40 or 50 mile an hour past them generally. And because you were so low, weren't you? Because you were really low to the ground in them. Basically, you were ba- you were you were tire level. You were tire level. If you're on a bike, you're fairly high up. You're the same level, you know, eye level as well as pe- people in the cars driving past or whatever sort of thing. Doing a Sinclair C5, stop at a traffic light, something like that. A truck pulls up to you. You're just level with its wheel. Well, not only was you out of the, you was a, you was at the wheel level, but you was also out of the visible viewpoint of any rear view mirror. And then, of course, the final thing is they were plagued with technical failures. So not many got sold. Not many got made after the 17,000, I imagine, because of that. And I think it died a very painful death. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a bit of a shame because, I mean, he is a, a sort of quintessential British entrepreneur, inventor guy from that sort of t- technological period. And, you know, there was ambition there to, in that respect, of what he was trying to do, which was, you know, get people to do something that was a bit more ecologically friendly. But it just was a bit, you know, rubbish. It's just, it was the wrong, like I said, it was the wrong thing at the wrong time. I mean, you can see the 
there's there's clearly a market for these sort of little electronic, well, not little sort of thing, but these, you know, more eco-friendly transportation devices with like powered scooters and stuff like that. And what what the, what the uh, I can't remember what they're called, the ones where you stand up straight and you've, I don't know what they're called, I can't remember. Do you know the ones I mean? Segways. You stand on the, segways, that's them, yeah, segways. So those kind of things are, you know, a bit, a bit more of a sort of safer yeah, um, evolution yeah. of, the, of the idea behind this. It's just, you know the actual idea behind it of being so low to the ground yep. and traveling on main roads around congested London. And remember, this was pre-congestion charge, so there was it was a free for all in London. Um, so you know it, it wasn't great, and so it was a. I think you're right. It was a a, a product out of time. Yeah, it was just. Are you right? It was of its time. It's it's just the technology at the time did not support where Sink where Clive Sinclair, Clive Sinclair wanted that to go. He was always interested in that kind of electronic vehicle and that thing for the people and that the idea of an electric car. Ironically, he's just super ahead of his time. Had he been thinking, had he been around now, and had he been having had the money, the kind of money that it would take to invest in that kind of thing now, he's you're looking at another Tesla really. Um, so you're looking, so you're looking at that's that sign of guy. Yeah, because it's ironic sort of thing. We're recording this, what day is it? 7th of January. Um, and so Tesla today has just been announced as the world's richest man, hasn't he? Yeah. don't know if you saw that. Yeah. It's 100, 100, 180 billion or something he's worth now. He's, he's just overtaken Jeff Bezos. Yeah, absolutely, which is crazy, really. You know, in the, it, That's the top Trump's games around the world doomed now because of that. That changeover, <laughs> that, that's just cost the top Trump company millions. <laughs> Um, but um, it was uh, it was apparently I've just I've just had a quick look. It had a range on its battery of twenty miles, which you know, if you're in in a city for what it's you know for what it was aimed at, but it's just it was too too dangerous. Anyway, so there you go. So August nineteen eighty five, not a lot going on. We're losing at tennis. People getting hearts transplanted, and Sinclair C five ceased production. That's your roundup of that month. Okay, and welcome back. We've got three more games for you uh, that we're going to look at in this section. The first one, a strange conversion of a classic cult film from around that time, begging the question why, uh, the Rocky Horror Show. You know, a, well, a very well-known film, a cult classic, product of Richard, Richard O'Brien, still watched today, still, still watching cinemas and stuff like that. And then we have, for some reason, they decided to try and make a game of it. And I couldn't quite figure out why. I, I mean, I can. It's, it's It was a popular like clumsy con like whatever sort of thing this is just another one of those to me it's another cash grab it's another what can we license um or we can license the rocky horror picture show um and then turn it into another flick screen collectathon yeah exactly right what's strange here is that the film came out in 1975 by the way did it was it yeah. old yes oh. and the stage show the stage know. show the stage show which had predated the film began in 1973 so this game was a long time in the making <laughs> Didn't look at it. No, exactly. And it's also a Spectrum port. I don't know if you know that, but it's a Sinclair Spectrum port. Uh, yeah, that, did, that doesn't surprise me. So, well, no, it didn't. As soon as it started, I was like, I can see why. So, I don't, I, I'm going to say this, I don't like Rocky Horror Picture Show. Okay, I don't. And I get it. It's, it's you know, it, it was a cult classic. I think it actually became a cult classic because originally it was actually a bit of a, a, bit of a disaster, the film. But it was then starting to be shown at midnight screenings and it just picked up that kind of cult following. So, there's, a, there's an mm-hmm. audience for that. Yeah. No, it's very popular in the LGBT community as well as those that like musical and singing and stuff. So it's got all that going for it. Great. The game doesn't capture any of that for me. It is just a wander the round with pretty perfunctory graphics, picking stuff up, doing reasonably stuff like you know, it's a bit of an explore the mansion with with some kind yeah. of quirky characters and the odd 
sort of cheeky moment when all your clothes fall off, you know, very Kenny Everett for its time, where the various characters that kind of represent the characters from the film just say the lines that they say in the film repeatedly a lot, just to yeah. tie it in, to make sure that you know you're in that kind of universe. So it, what it does is it's a game that could have been any game um, set anywhere, but as soon as they added Rocky Horror to it and then just made the characters just say things from the film, that makes it a Rocky Horror game. And it's it's neither here nor there, really. You either, if you Even if you liked Rocky Horror... There's not enough Rocky Horror in this to make it great. And the music's yeah. kind of drilling after a while because it's just the time up over and over and over. So eventually, mm-hmm. you just for me, it was just a big, it was a switch off. So quirky with some neatish graphics, I suppose, if you're willing to go with it. But um, I think it's the film was lost in the translation in this game and late licensing, <laughs> late licensing. Well, I think that probably came came around because of, like you said, sort of thing, it was gaining popularity. So when, it, when something starts to become popular, I think it, I think it would print on TV and, I seem to remember it being shown on Channel Four, um, yeah. And so there, there, there was there was around that time because I remember seeing it sometime in the eighties. I don't know what around the time, but I, but I, but I think there was a, a bit of a, a renaissance around it that probably led to was it, is it CRL? Maybe I can't remember what made it sort of thing, but someone picked it up and then thought, you know, we'll we'll, we'll we can make a game of this. Yeah, and yeah. I think you're right. It, it's recognizable. I put recognizable sprites and music. Yeah, and now that's they are that's generous, but they are kind of, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. They look okay. They're yeah. quite big and everything like that. But what this led me down was an actual thought process of um, there's so many of these collectathon games that um, there seems to be this obsession with collecting stuff in the eighties, and, and I noted whether this was a reflection of, of growing consumerism Ooh, um, around the time heavy. sort of thing. Um, and that the, 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 these kind of games were just like our notion of video games was built around collecting stuff and making stuff better and 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 and, and that kind of stuff like and whether you know shooting games were a reflection of war and whether these collectathons were built on the fact of uh, capitalism and the fact of accruing stuff and getting stuff together and, and the more and more you got because there's just so many of them and I know it's an easy it's an easy game type to sort of make sort of thing if you collect more of stuff your score goes up. Okay, that's fair enough, sort of thing. But there were just so many of them that there was that, that that seemed to it must have come out of somewhere because if you collect stuff and your score goes up, that in and in and of itself is a reflection of obtaining stuff and and reflection reflecting your worth by having stuff. It, it put me on a thought process anyway, which uh, I didn't expect the Rocky Horror Picture game to actually do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think maybe you're right. I think there's a, a bit of a combination of things. I think you're right. I think they are a reflection of this idea that it's, it is that idea of purchasing, buying things, having things, collecting things, and and the eighties is kind of replete with that, and it extends. And I also think there's a little bit of there's a little bit of a notion here of so they needed to differentiate themselves from arcade games, which were a money grab, and so this in order to do that, you had to have the green game over more than one screen. And they needed more to do than just shoot stuff or collect stuff or kill stuff. So I think there's a little bit... So they try and put puzzles in that mean you have to go backwards and forwards and make it a bit more exploratory. So it was just... It was a bit more than the... You know, because they couldn't match arcade graphics. But one thing they always had over arcades was the fact that they could make the games be more. Because an arcade game mm-hmm. is designed to yeah, yeah. Pump, get you pumping money into a machine. That's what it's designed for. It's not that's the that's how they make money. So so I think it's a bit of a throwback. But I think you, you tie into that consumerism is really neat actually because it would explain why there's so many of them as well. Because I mean even in the games we played here, I think we must come across a few. In, even in this list, in the last 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 episode of the podcast, there was some there. And there's going to be more. There is. There's loads of. If you think about the eighties themselves, sort of thing with with movies like um, you know Wall Street and. Things like that, and the, the rampant consumerism that grew through the eighties—it's going to feed into everything, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, it's just one of those. It's just one of those things that 
you know, any games are a product and a, of the culture that makes them. And we like collecting stuff. Why yeah. do we like collecting stuff? Because it, it feeds into our self-worth. Absolutely. And I don't remember the plot of the film involving anyone wandering around a mansion collecting things. I do remember it involving somebody wandering around a mansion and then it all gets a bit crazy. But then that's a, you know, it's a crazy musical. It'd be like trying to apply logic to, you know, Little Shop of Horrors or something. You know, it's just it's just fun. But I just, yeah. Might, yeah, like you say, I think it is a bit of a reflection of the time. Definitely. Absolutely. There you go. Wow. Who would have thought Rocky Horror Rocky Horror being created in 1973 would have a discussion in 2021 um, about consumerism? There you go. <laughs> there you go. Richard good. O'Brien, he probably sat there going, that's what I meant when I wrote it. Finally, somebody, somebody's seen the light. Took all that time, but somebody has seen the light. In 1980s. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he couldn't be more, you know, obvious sort of thing with the Crystal Maze, which is all about collecting stuff. Exactly. He never stopped. If you go <laughs> he to, never stopped. If you go to his house now, he has loads of people just trapped in different rooms in his house. <laughs> collecting get, things. Yeah, they can't get out. His house is like the Crystal Maze. You're like, once you go for, for dinner, you're not coming out for 10 years. <laughs> Every floor blows air up and there's just loads of bits of paper wrapping around you. <laughs> Richard, stop it. Yeah, stop for, it. Stop installing giant turbine-driven fans in your house. It's very disruptive to anything we're trying to achieve. <laughs> so there you go, Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's not great. Uh, it's recognisable as the, the characters from that film in a situation which the film never depicted. Yes, yes. And it does have some nice high-res images at the start of the logo. So <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Let's move on. That, that is uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. But it's better than our next game. Most things are. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, our next game is uh, Nutcracker. This was giving a tacky in the magazine. Nutcracker, you can probably, t- well, you might not tell from the title, but it is sort of thing. It's a squirrel based platformer, that most underrepresented of uh, genres. <laughs> <laughs> and with good cause, if we're looking at this. Nutcracker is a scrolling platformer, left to right platformer, where you play a squirrel. Jumping on platforms badly, slowly collecting stuff again. Acorns. Acorns. Collecting acorns. You're also the weakest squirrel to ever have lived because should you come in contact with a butterfly's wings, you die. Uh, anything, uh, a caterpillar, anything. This this squirrel, you know, needs to work out a bit. He needs to eat those acorns and get some strength in his uh, limbs because this is just dreadful. It's really slow. Uh, uh, the only thing I could think is that the visuals are quite cute. The squirrel itself is quite nice. Yeah. You know, it's, it's okay for a sprite, but it's tied to a game that's banal and annoying. And I couldn't help myself, but I just wrote nuts to this. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, mine was yes. nutcrapper. <laughs> that was my one word. Um, I agree with <laughs> agree with everything you've said. But it was it was it was a nicely drawn squirrel. On that was as much as I could say really. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Me- it was it, I think it was meant to be like a Pac-Land type game where it's kind of that. But it lacked any of the speed, any of the fun, any of the characters, and any of the design, which is pretty much everything, yeah. really. So all you ended up with is a, a reasonably chirpy-looking squirrel badly surviving a garden. The squalling was quite nice and smooth enough, I guess. And, and 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 the thing was, you go back and forth, so left and right, it was all right. But the, but it was so slow and dull and crap jumping. Just trying, just trying to jump on the on the little levels was yeah, silly. It was just if you've nonsense. ever watched a squirrel. You know, if you're out in the woods or if you've got some trees nearby, something sort of squirrels are really agile. Yeah, they don't tend they don't tend to you know no, do what that one does. Not be able to jump anywhere, sort of thing. They're, they're, you know, there's even flying versions of them. 
Um, you know, squirrels are fast, agile, they can climb trees, they can jump around, they jump from branch to branch really coolly, you know, if you watch them. This is not a squirrel I know of. It's also either, because, of course, again, with some of these games, for fun, I guess, I'm not sure why, they decided to make the sprites scale crazy. So you've either got a squirrel the size of a butterfly or a butterfly the size of a squirrel. And let me tell you, (laughs) a butterfly the size of a squirrel would be a challenge for anyone, let alone a squirrel. So there's just, you know, scaling issues. And I get that they have to try and make it fun. But you know what? Just if you're going to do a game like this, make it from small spice. It doesn't have to be enormous. It just has to be fun. Yeah, because if you, if you, I mean, similarly sort of thing, if you've got to do something like this sort of thing, then look to something like Gribbly's Day Out. Yeah. Which is, you know, cute little character sort of thing. It doesn't have to be a bloody squirrel, but cute little character that's flying around and jumping around, similar sort of thing. Enjoyable. This crap. Yep, very. <laughs> yeah, so we didn't like Nutcracker. Um, no, waste, so let's move waste on. of time. Why do that? Yeah, indeed. Let's move on to something that is actually worth discussing. I'm going to guess that probably most of you are going to have heard of this, and that is because it is a way of the exploding fist. For anybody that had this or played this at the time sort of thing, that first time you loaded it from tape and it stopped about a third of the way into loading and just let out that scream. Oh, my God. Um, incredible stuff. It's the Bruce Lee scream. Um, yes, it is. And it is, it is incredible. This is another one of those, like, uh, beachhead two sort of thing, really sort of tech pace. You know, the, the C64 SID chip could do some good stuff. That's, you know, scream that it comes out of it sort of thing. It's just, it, even now, sort of thing, whenever he played it, sort of thing, I was like, ah, that's great. That's really a really great intro to what is going to be you know, a good fighting game. And my first comment at this sort of thing is state-of-the-art fighter for the time. It really yep. was. This was, this, was a game, this was a game changer. Yes, it was. It's a little slow. It plays a little slow now sort of thing, but it's still really good fun. You know, I still enjoyed my, my time playing it right now. It did get superseded down the line sort of thing, but let's roll back and let's play this as when this came out. This yep. is incredible. Yes. You know, on every level, this was an absolute... What I think what the only thing I'd seen similarly um, was Karate Champ in the arcade. Yep. yep. And that's crap compared to this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this was, there was just nothing like it. Where did this come from? Two guys on screen that were incredibly well animated. You had 16 moves. 16. Yep. yep. Every every angle of the joystick with, whether it's walking left and right, jumping, somersaulting backwards, backflips, roundhouses, low flips, turning round, you know, punches, kicks. It was great. I, I didn't get to it because I was still not very good at something, but it had the little mini game in the middle with the bull, if I remember rightly. Was this that yeah. one? Um, this is that one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. You had the bull charging it and you had to punch it in the face. Yes, that's right. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, music's great. It looks lovely. This is, you know, this was a proper wow moment in, in the Commodore 64 history, I think. Without the pun intended, this was a, this was a game changer. At this moment yeah. in time, um, this was when... I think for the very first time properly, the Commodore 64 flexed its muscles a bit. And all of a sudden, because this was based on Karate Champ, there's no way around that. Karate Champ was the kind of first person-to-person karate simulation, for want of a better word. But it was the even the arcade was slow, was kind of slow and a bit ploddy and, you know, and it had that kind of weird sort of dual control. It was a bit odd. Mm. Then this came along. Aside from the fact that you remember that you've not only got that Bruce Lee sample at the start, but all of the fighting moves are sample-based. So when you fight, mm, punch, yeah. kick, you get playing samples, which is dead unusual. Very, very unusual for its time. This set the standard for this kind of game. 
this was the benchmark for this kind of fighting game and it was genuinely amazing even when I reloaded it and re and replayed it and yes I got the same shiver down my spine when the, the opening screen loads and you've got that great image of that guy punching the kind of karate wooden block thing mm -hmm. then the game starts you've got these enormous sprites I mean bear in mind look what came before it in terms of the sprite sizes and all of a sudden you've got these really well animated enormous sprites jumping around the screen on a machine that could display eight sprites and at this to this point that hadn't really been pushed or challenged all of a sudden you've got these two enormous characters fully animated with like you say 16 moves the ability to somersault, jump kick, roundhouse kick, and do all of these fancy moves. And you had the return animation. So if you punched someone, you got winded. If you kicked them in the head, they flew down unconscious. Mm -hmm. It was genuinely a game changer. And it had the right pitch of AI play. So if you were playing at one player, you could actually get quite far and you could get quite good at it. And you could, you know, and it became quite challenging. It wasn't just a, you know, knockdown start again. There was, you know, as you say, you got more advanced to playing the player you were playing against got more difficult. Add all of that would be enough. You've then got it two player. So for me, this is absolutely a benchmark game for the Commodore 64. And it was only topped by one of the game series. Yes. Yeah. And well, the, uh, only uh, that one. We'll come to that later, later down the line but it was only topped once. And even now, I, I think, and even by even when they made the sequel to this, it was never as good as this. No, so. they, they, they struck gold. Yeah. They struck gold, really, they really did. Um, this is one of those games as well, sort of thing that, and I, I know we said right, 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 right very stout when we, we initially sort of introduced this to try and sort of take away the roast-tinted specs and stuff. This is, this is really hard, this game, because I, I remember the... The day we got this, brought it home, I spoke with my brother, it was me and him, um, and that screen erupted from the TV. We, we were lucky enough to, at that time, because we didn't know it was going to happen, to have the, the Commodore 64 hooked up to the main TV in the front, in the living room. So the sound was up and we were just dumbfounded. We were so dumbfounded, we went next door and got all our next door neighbours to come round, played it to them, and then we just had a huge round robin that lasted all one afternoon into the night there was about eight of us just taking on each other no game had ever done that no nobody wanted to leave nobody wanted to go anywhere everybody just wanted to be be next up winner it was winner stays on for for what must have been eight or nine hours and, and you know it's just incredible which is brilliant and we just played and played and played and played and it just didn't get old it was because nope. nobody had seen anything like it and i think this, this only got a sizzler didn't it yep that baffled me, and especially there's a, there's other there's a lot of strange stuff going on in this particular issue of that, which we'll cover a bit later. But I I agree with you. This I can't imagine a world where this is anything other than a gold medal. Yeah, I can. Right down to every, I mean, you've got not just the characters and everything else. You've got different backgrounds. You've got the little guy in the background, the little sensei mm -hmm. guy that judges it. You've got the kind of scoring yep. mechanism. It's got all that, and even and it still even has enough memory for music in it. I really like the music. The music is absolutely, but it's the music is is spot on. It's exactly what you need to fit all of that in a single load I mean obviously mm. loading screen aside and for it to actually be better than an arcade for the first time it's, yeah. it's it is a there's a land it's a landmark game there's there's a few we will come across in the C64 and this was I think and I think in my opinion is the first true landmark game of the Commodore 64 where all of a sudden you took a look at the Commodore 64 and you go, that's on a Commodore 64? Yeah. And at the time, yeah. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to play, I mean, I had a friend who had an A called Electron and he had it on that because it was out on all the format. It wasn't as good. I had a friend who had a uh, Sinclair Spectrum, of course, wasn't as good. The C64 no, version was, hands down, the best one. Absolutely. And it was never bettered for a long, long time. Combat games, this was the one. When Saboteur came out in the Sinclair Spectrum, there was this no, because the guy kind of looked like a ninja and there was a whole cult of that thing around the 80s of kung fu ninjas fighting and 
I think you know that kind of thing was all the fighting fantasy books and those and ninja books around. There was a kind of a, a whole fascination with karate, and there was an explosion in UK-based karate. And for real, people would go and study and go and, and learn karate and different and different martial arts. There was mm-hmm. kind of an explosion of interest in it, and this really was at the tip of that spear. You know, this game. Well, I think it was lucky sort of thing. I mean, obviously at the moment, if you're enjoying it, it's Cobra Kai out, but uh, Karate Kid. Yes, was absolutely. around the same yeah. time. Yes, I think that it was, was 1985, wasn't it? Yeah. And yeah. so I think that that was a uh, my next door neighbour went on to become a karate teacher. Yeah, because that's of right. the culmination of these sort of things that yes. happened. Yes. Um, and, and no doubt he was one of the people playing this game that day, and uh, and I, I have no doubt that that went on to think this. This for me was one of those moments like about 15 years later when I saw Soul Calibur running on the Dreamcast uh, for the first time. This is another one of those moments. This is a, a technological step forward of like going, I didn't even know that this was popular. And it came from Melbourne House. Who the hell were Melbourne House at the time? Um, yeah. And, you know, they weren't someone I was particularly aware of or anything like that, but it just seemed to come out of nowhere. I don't know that they were ever this successful with the game again either. It really was their big landmark. Um- yeah, I'm trying to think what what else did I mean rock and rock and roll the wrestling one rock and wrestle. Yeah, were, I just don't think any of them were ever as pos- as popular as way they exploded fist. No. Certainly across the various platforms, and certainly not the sequel. No, but the sequel did have a did have an ace up its sleeve. But we'll talk about it that. Did, it, it did, yeah, absolutely, it did. But yeah, I think way the explosion fist was was yeah was it, it was a yeah it's a it's a it's the proper first you know one on one fighting game where you you didn't want to put the joystick down you no. didn't want to and you could become no. really really good at it. Yes, um, absolutely. It did have the cheap you know there was the cheap and it still works. I did try it sort of thing, the the leg sweep. Yeah. Um, if you want to try and cheese your way through the sort of single player, but. Um, after a little while, I don't know whether something happened sort of thing, but after a little while, when I was trying that, it would it would actually jump over my leg yeah, and then yeah. kick, and then just downward kick me. I was like, all oh, right, okay, you've you've got you're getting around it. So there was there's some really good AI. It feels like you're fighting another person sort of thing. So in 64K, cramming all this in, like you said, with all the samples, all the moves, all the animation, all the sprites. Everything, yeah. This is a, this is to me the, the the start of. I know people could, yeah, you got you like said sort of in Kung Fu Champ or whatever sort of thing, but yeah, it, it started here. I have to say, I never ever get tired of groin punching people in that game. Even to the, even <laughs> no, when I was replaying a, it, the, when they crum- when they crumple ball. a little, yeah, when they crumple into a little ball, when you've satisfactorily smashed their gonads with your powerful exploding fist maneuver, you know there is because because it, it's a it's a it's a two stage. I figured it out finally. I was thinking, what is the appeal of that move? It's a two stage move. You crouch. And then you're timing it, and you know you you know you're committing to that move because it's a two stager. No, yeah, it's yeah. not, and it's a bit like because I don't know about you, but I have this curse of never actually jump kicking when I want in that game. I always do a little skippy jump first, and then do the flying kick. I don't know if that's just <laughs> yeah. the way I do it, or whether it's a quirk or whatever. So, but the the fist, you know, the the power fist punch. I guess you call the the is it? It can't be called a groin punch. You wouldn't be allowed. It'd just be a low low punch. Just a cr- crouch punch. I yeah, guess. but um, it's just I I have to say. I, I, when I replayed this, I was playing it for quite some time because I just—it's a great game. It's just no way around that. Yeah. It's good fun, and the AI isn't impossible, which means that it, as we've we explored this with other games when we've talked about these in the podcast, if you make a game impossible, it's no fun. If you make the compu- computer beatable, even if it's hard but beatable, that's a challenge, and then the challenge gets makes means that you, if you make mistakes. You made those mistakes because you weren't good enough, not because the game was just stupidly hard. That is yeah. a very different defining moment for games for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- this year sort of thing, I mean, as I've, as I've sort of been saying to you, I've been, I've been playing through all the Souls games. So I played Dark Souls 1, 2, 3, Bloodborne, Demon Souls, 
because I've bounced off them so many times before, but I think something about worlds that are <laughs> dying and full of disease sort of thing seems to have struck a chord with me this year. Um, strangely <laughs> enough, for some, for, some strange, for some strange, strange reason, and Bloodborne being all about some blood, you know, some blood disease sort of thing, I was like, I mm, wonder what that could have been about. Anyway, the point is with those games is similar to what you're saying. They have this, um, you know, mystique around them, they'll get good and all this sort of thing. And then, yes, they are difficult, they are hard, but the mistakes are yours. They're easily yeah. doable. You just you take your time, you do it right. I, I've completed all of them. I'm no ace game player, but they are doable sort of thing. And that's the same with this. You feel like the mistakes are yours. Yes. You know, it's, the classic Mar- it's the classic Mario thing. Yes. You die in Mario because you made the mistake. Yes, absolutely. You know, and it's not where the game is cheap or cheating you sort of yeah. thing. There are times in those games sort of thing where it does feel cheap, but then you look at it and go, actually, no, it's, it's, I just need to do this when that happens. And yeah. that's what's worked with this. You can read the computer's moves, you can block and you you know it's great it, it, yeah. it's it's still to this day a really 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 good game and, and i think we're both in agreement here sort of thing it's a shame this didn't get the gold medal no i think it, it not only did it deserve a gold medal i think that's but there's there's a weird theme in this particular issue of zap zap had actually moved offices completely at this point so they'd also one of the some of their reviewers and some of their stalwarts had left because of the move so they'd got a new, some new writers in. There's an extended letters section, and there's an, an incredible editorial in this one, basically hammer sticking a uh, sticking the boot in to some of the other magazines that were basically claiming that they had exclusive. So this is a this episode. It's got a fighting game in it, and it's actually a fighting issue of Zap. It's got a, it's got a real fight about it because it's. Re- I think mm. they're really trying to establish that they feel like they're having to re-establish themselves, and that these more boring magazines, for a better description, had tried to stick the boot into them. So there's a bit of that. Which, which is why it surprises me that Wave the Exploding Fist didn't get the gold medal and wasn't the front cover. I, yeah, I can only imagine what Oliver Frey would have done with this as a... Or maybe it had been a bit too obvious, because what would you do apart, like you said, apart from that guy punching the thing? What could you have done? But I could imagine like a really cool... But you just imagine Absolutely. what Oliver Frey would have done with just two people beating beating the crap out of each other. Absolutely, but it was uh, this was a nine ninety five on cassette. That's the you know I think it's, it hit that sort of it was the upper Brent price benchmark for cassettes at the time was about nine ninety nine. Was it a ten ten pounds basically? Yeah, yeah, ten pounds. Yeah. So I think for ten pounds you're getting a, a really great, probably one of the greatest fighting games, certainly one of the greatest fighting games on the Commodore sixty four, and easily the pioneering game. You know the the first game of its type like that which really set the bench very high. And like we said before, it only got beaten once. It did. It did indeed. So yeah, where the Exploding Fist, we kind of love it. Yeah, I do. <laughs> it's, 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 fab- it's fabulous. Even I was just, when I re- saw that it was a sizzler, I'm like, knowing that they'd given gold to, you know, raid um, other games that will, I don't think were as good, but you know what? I'm not writing it at the time. I'm not living in, you know, 1985 and maybe the, you know, I don't know. And I had a feeling, I don't know whether it's just me, but I had a feeling they may have got that late into the magazine's writing, which is probably why it's kind of, but I don't know. I don't know this, you know, at some stage we may be able to ask one of the, one of the writers of the, the review, maybe one day Gary Pennell tweeters and say, actually, we you know we got that game the day before we went to publishing or whatever, but who knows? Who knows? But <laughs> easily the first great game. It's certainly in my top ten list of games of the Commodore 64 of all time, without a doubt. So there you go. Let's uh let's take a break then. Um and then we'll come back with what was going on uh in music in August eighty five.
Okay, welcome back. So, music, August 85. What was going on? Let's have a look. Uh, number one, singles. Uh, there are only two. Uh, we mentioned this one, I think, last month. We did. Uh, in last issue, so I think that was Into the Groove. Yep. Stay, stayed uh, at number, f- uh, number one for four weeks for Madonna. Great song. We know that. We, we know that. Like that. Yes, we yeah, like we Into know the that Groove. Sort of thing. Not so much the next one. Nope. Uh, where I Got You, Babe, UB40 and Chrissy Hind. We spoke about this last week. We did. <laughs> and we didn't like that. No. <laughs> so uh, that became, that was at number one for one week, uh, which is one week too many. But there you go. So your number one singles from uh, August 85. Uh, you know, Into the Groove's great, and it's good that, you know, people like that. Madonna was riding high at this point, uh, 1985, but then uh, yeah, the British public showed their usual taste and put I Got You, Babe uh, at number one. Number one albums, uh, we spoke about this one, Brothers in Arms. Dire Straits. Yep, you were not a fan, but I don't mind it so much. Although I have to say, do I like it? Do I know? If you'd asked me to name, I could probably tell you one track off it. And I'm not even sure that the second track I know by Dire Straits is even on that album. So I can, well, I can name three Dire Straits tracks, and they are that one, that one, Money for Nothing. There's Romeo and Juliet and Sultan's a Swing. Right. Okay. That's yeah. it. I, yeah. I, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you another one. And he did uh, theme tune to not Princess Bride. He did another one. But where yeah, Princess the, Bride the, did the, do. He did do that. But he also did the theme theme music to a Scottish film with Burt Lancaster in. Oh yeah, yeah. I know. It's, I know. I don't. I can't remember the name of it. It'll come to us. Yeah, that. But there you go. That's that's my knowledge. Of Mark Knopfler and Dire Straits. It's not. It's, it's not what you would call in depth. <laughs> Probably because I just don't like Dire. I just don't like Brothers in Arms. I never did, even at the time. I, I watched the video and I went, "Oh, that's good." Right now, I was amazed by the video, but hey ho. Yeah, it was. That was the MTV generation, wasn't it? And when MTV actually had music videos on it, and not just endless, you know, rubbish. So yeah. More in, 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 interestingly, though, I think is the phenomenon that was the, the, the other number one album for this month, which was uh, now that's what I call music five ah yes so the essentially it's a compilation album um this was the fifth one obviously now that's why i call music five there'd been one two three and four before this they represented you know essentially they were double albums weren't they Yes, um, they, were. they were. Double, they were double albums. They represented really good value for money, sort of thing. They were essentially just a roundup of the previous two or three months number ones or big hits or singles and stuff that that were there, sort of thing. So, and they're, they're still going. I yeah. find that amazing. I think they're up to one hundred and twenty something now. I think something like that. incredible stuff, sort of thing. But they they spawned a you know quite a few imitators and stuff. There was the what was it the, the hits? There was hits. Yes, there was hits. I don't think they lasted as long. Like if it's not going now, it obviously hasn't, has it? <laughs> no, no. So there was hits. I think there was a number of them, but they, this particular one was the most successful, obviously. And and I wonder, you know, with with the now that's what I call music thing. What what impact that did it have? Much of an impact on you know the kind of music we consume because like people would then you put off buying singles almost, knowing it was going to come to an album in a few few months did that do you think it had any impact i mean people were buying singles a lot back then the music pro chats but was this kind of like that moment of like just waiting to get a lot together I, I, i'm not sure if the you'd get compilations before this but now that's what i call music or the now series sort of thing seems to be something a bit different i don't know i think i think they appealed to a certain niche so you were people were always going to buy because they came after the singles obviously so people were always going to buy the singles first. Mm. They st- they appealed to people that either didn't want to buy the singles because they didn't want lots of singles or they just didn't get to it at the time. And it, so they just... A lot of people used to buy these for the one or two tracks that they liked on it. And then the rest were kind of just extra stuff that they might listen to. But I think... I wonder how often people discovered things that they liked on the back of a Now album. And it's be quite an interesting question to ask is like, you know, if I think about all the music that I listened to, how many of that did I 
get directly into because I'd heard a track off a Now album, potentially, because I, I, I didn't own every Now album. I certainly had Now. Now that's what I call music. I think it was one my sister's or brother might have bought. I think I had Now 4. I don't remember owning Now 5, but I think everyone's probably got at least one Now album in their back catalogue somewhere. Somewhere. I know I did sort of thing. And I know um, when I looked back at a few of them and saw some of the track listing sort of thing, these... Although I probably wasn't aware totally of it at the time, sort of thing, these were the first place I heard sort of goth stuff like The Mission and Sisters yeah. of Mercy, and because they were on there, things like yeah. Tower of Strength, probably I can't, I can't remember what the Sisters was, probably Temp, not Temple of Love, This Corrosion, I think, or, or yeah. Lucretia or something like that's probably dotted around one of them. These, you know, this kind of music was sort of they, they weren't ever going to get to number one, and I think that's kind of the interesting thing with these now yes. albums, sort of thing, is because they would have these kind of weird outliers tucked away somewhere on on side two, so you'd have your big big number ones that everyone had heard of sort of thing but they would fill them with these more obscure titles and and whether that's a case of sort of thing they couldn't afford to fill it with all the number ones because obviously I imagine they you know getting all the police stuff or whoever it was sort of thing would probably cost a pretty penny uh, but getting these more obscure track was kind of a good you know good idea because the bands were probably quite happy for the exposure yeah. knowing that you know that these albums are going to be heard by a lot more people and that you would then you know your your ability to reach people went beyond maybe maybe getting a top of the pops appearance. Yeah, maybe maybe getting played in the top, you know, the chart rundown um, on a Sunday afternoon. The people buying these would would actually listen to them fully, and then you know be exposed to these different kinds of odd bits of music. I think it probably did definitely had an effect on me. Um, I'm guessing it did on you too. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's a number of factors that come into play. I don't know the frequency that they were released back then. I think there might have been one a year, uh, maybe maybe two. They certainly used to co- seem to appear more often at Christmas time, that's for sure. So there was always normally a Now album. So they were going to be a, a good, they were always a good Christmas gift, um, generally speaking. So there was always that. They were, obviously they were on vinyl at the time because this predates CD a little. They were kind of a big purchase. And also, I think, because um, compilation albums are nothing new, because compilation albums existed from the 70s onwards. You know, they were they were top of the pops, used to produce endless amounts of compilation albums from various different tracks of the chart at that time. But unless you listen to the Top 40 on Radio 1 at the time, your exposure to pop music, if you didn't have MTV, which in U- the UK at this time was only available on Sky and Sky was expensive, it was Top of the Pops, a TV show for half an hour a week on BBC One. And they they didn't play every track off the Top 40. They just played, obviously, the number one, but they just played sporadic tracks out of the chart, you know, the ones they could either get in the studio or that maybe had a bit of a video, whatever. This, as you say, was a great way of getting exposure from some of these artists would probably happily be on a now record, even though they might only get a small amount of royalties. They are getting to a much bigger audience that might not have otherwise got to. And I think that was the appeal. The track listing for Now 5 is odd. I mean, you've got instantly you've got Duran Duran in the, in the first track on the first album. View to a Kill, dare I mention that. God awful thing. But we've got View to a Kill, the first track by Duran Duran. Second track, Scritti Politi. Third track, Harold Faltermeyer. So you've got tracks that everyone would have heard, but not necessarily everyone would have bought into. But no, and these, I think, in all in all fairness, I think that we're now in a position. We're now in the world where you had record players that were directly connected to tape recorders. So half the time, these compilation records were for people to make their own compilation tapes so they could stick them in their cars um, at the time, because obviously there was no such thing as CD in a certainly in a car at that point. It was it was a tape as much as it chewed its way through more tapes and everything else. But people were also at this time starting to get their own personal Walkmans, albeit they were just at the cusp of affordability. Really, at that time, they weren't quite there yet. The, I think these albums started to become more popular because people could just buy them and make their own track listings and stick them on a tape and bung them in the car and and it's the beginning of really if you think about that idea of taking tracks putting the ones you like on something that you listen to this is the beginning is of ipods and mp3s and and it's the beginning of that that, that process 
This yeah, is how it I starts. So. If you don't have technology and encoding technology like MP3 and a device like an iPod, if you roll it back to being able to get tracks and make your own track listing and put them on a device you could listen to, this is the way we did it back then. Just to say, um, they did. It did become very, uh, very popular because according to Wikipedia, now now hits and other various artists' compilation albums were occupying such a large fraction of the UK albums chart. A separate UK compilation chart was created. <laughs> so it had they had their own chart was created to restrict the album charts to releases by a single act. So these compilation albums became by by the end of the eighties huge. They were they were so so prevalent that like as well as I say, people were probably waiting to buy these rather than you know buy the single, buy the album. This was probably the knock on effect of that um, because you would get so much more value for money for waiting for this on tape, which may be like eight ninety nine something like that, rather than buying a single. Um, and you'd get all these other albums with it. Um, they started in nineteen eighty three. Um, and they settled into uh, three a year, uh, early in the year, March, April, and be one in the summer, and then one for Christmas. New releases of note. Uh, let's move on from now. That's why called music. New releases of note. Uh, running up that hill, Kate Bush. Yeah, yeah can't argue the, with that. The amazing Kate Bush uh, yep. in at number nine, um, which is you know. We could do a whole podcast about Kate Bush, but we're not going to because we're talking about C64 games and she's yep. never in a C64 game. So, Surprises but, you know, me. Running, yeah, absolutely. She'd just be collecting stuff, though, on a platformer. Yeah, they would. Wuthering Heights <laughs> featuring Kate Bush. And it would just be a really badly drawn Kate Bush wandering around, wuthering, wuthering around the moors, collecting things. And that's what it would be, inevitably. Can you avoid the clutches of Heathcliff? <laughs> Absolutely. By using the power of babushka, yes, you change exactly, into every yeah. now and again. You know, and every now and again, you can control some army men for yes. army. What was it called? <laughs> army moves. Uh, also released another great female singer, holding out for a hero. 1985. Bonnie by Bonnie Tyler came in at number 34. I wouldn't say she was great. Uh, don't knock the holding out for a hero. <laughs> it's just it's fabulous. It's not fabulous. Don't knock it. I'm not it's having bloody, it. I'm not having it. It's bloody you know, awful. This is a point. This is a point sort of thing where we differ. Old gravel voice Tyler. Ah, oh, she's amazing. Don't knock it. But new new albums. There was Jack All for new releases for albums. The only one that sprung out to me was on the 4th of August, came in at number 52, was Phil Oakey and Giorgio Moroder. Do you ever wonder where they met? I reckon it was in a <laughs> pub in Sheffield. I, was just, I just wonder at what point they bumped into each other and said, you know what, let's let's make an album. Because, I mean, Giorgio Moroder's an amazing... Well, I suppose they're both synthesizer people, aren't they? Well, the thing is, I was what was I watching the other day? Nation's top... 80s songs on Channel 5 countdown right, of yeah, the new yeah, year yeah. and there was someone talking about Don't You Want Me and how Don't You Want Me was really almost like the reinvention of British music that took started to take over America again that song sort of was kind of a spearhead for it so I would imagine that that song would have got I mean I don't know enough about the Human League sort of thing but I imagine they went over to America because of that yeah. and Maroda is, we, you know, Maroda is a synthesizer kind of guy he probably yeah. likes Philoki's voice and you know it led to one of the best songs of the 80s in my opinion which is Electric Dreams yes absolutely Absolutely. It's a, a fantastic film. song. Film is awful. I yes. mean, when we're talking about computer films, there's not many good ones sort of thing, and that's a particularly bad one. It's crap, but the song's good. <laughs> the song is amazing. I didn't actually know. I thought they were just a one-off partnership for the film. I never actually knew they released an album. No, and do you know what? I don't, I don't think I've ever heard any other tracks, which is making me want to find more, so I'm going to I'm gonna make a point of going and listening to that, because um, I've not yeah. come across a Giorgio Moroder combination track of any kind that I've not really liked ever. But yeah, he's got a great track record, great soundtracks, great synth stuff, and Electric Dream is brilliant so that's the music so an, an interesting month no, nothing particularly groundbreaking but there you go it can't always be live aid can it there you go that's the music hope you enjoyed it now 
And welcome back. After the music, let's move into our last set of games for this part of August 85. And we've got our first one. This was a Sizzler. Notable, probably not for its gameplay, but for one other thing. Uh, that game uh, is Thing on a Spring. Graham, Thing on a Spring? Great music. Right, it's Rob Hubbard, right? And what's to say? It's great, you know, it's got a cute character. The idea of the game is guess what? Wander around, you've got nine jigsaw pieces to collect before you got <laughs> then you've got to beat a goblin, I think. Um you're a spring, so you need oil which you have to collect and you have to dive around. You've got to activate switches and do stuff. It's it's a wander around collecty jumpy game it's got good music <laughs> there's no doubt in that and it is quite catchy i found the spring boing noise gradually annoyed me i have to say so it looks kind of cool the graphics are okay i just found it a bit hard and some of the screens seemed unpassable to me i wasn't sure what i was supposed to do and it mm-hmm. felt like i couldn't progress at certain points it felt like i got stuck in fact at mm-hmm. one point i did get stuck and i thought you know and, and i guess i had to get i started to get flashbacks of wizardry um of getting stuck it because <laughs> it's an area of fl- wizardry where you used to get stuck at one point and you could never get out of it it was okay it was <laughs> all, it was all right it's just it was a pretty poor game with good music i suppose it's an okay game with reasonably good music is it the kind of game i would draw me in a lot i have to say it probably isn't no i just found it i found found the controls just frustrating in the end i just kind of got a bit fed up with it i don't know how long yeah. i would have persevered with that had i had a joystick and a 64 back in 1985 not, not long if uh, my experience was uh, a memory no. thing to go by no. i mean my first comment on this is do we discuss the music of the game because yeah. the game is i think if you take the music out of the game the game is is nothing much to it really it's, it, i tell you what it did remind me of and strangely enough this was some kind of weird sort of proto metroid 2D Metroid style thing in which you went down sort of corridors, 2D well, well, you know, things whizzed around you that you kind of had to shoot, uh, but you think you couldn't shoot them in this, you know, and it, it kind of looked like that, except nowhere near as good and you couldn't shoot. The controls are really fitting. There's some subtlety to them until you kind of have to bounce off things to get up to certain levels. But like yourself, I, I got stuck on a num- number of occasions where collapsing platforms and I wasn't sure if I had to let them all collapse and get in there because there was a puzzle piece. So I went in there and then I couldn't get out because I couldn't jump back out of it led to restarting there was one way I couldn't seem to move because I couldn't I don't know whether my control was broken or something was not working because I couldn't move up lifts I couldn't, yeah, I, couldn't, I, I, I lift. couldn't do that either I don't know what, what what was going on am I supposed to be able to progress up a lift or I got to get a power up I just wasn't sure and it, and it led me to just becoming frustrated the, the controls you know the, the constant bouncing I know you're a spring I get it so it felt like a weaker version of Gribbly yes exactly what I made that note myself to me I, I can put all that aside because I think that's the game and it is just a scrot left to right scrolling thing with you know annoying controls and not particularly well constructed levels however on the upside there's the music and you yeah. know this introduction we've had clumsy colin or action bike sort of thing with rob hubbard and this is quite quite a bit of a step up i think it's oh, a bit, totally. bit more there's, there's a bit more nuance this is a bit more depth to this piece of music yeah. and this is one of those tunes that again i put like you know way the exploding fist and it's used of sound effects like beecher 2 and it's used as a sound effects and, and you know that speech sort of thing starting to show what the sid chip could actually do yes we've mentioned it before with summer games where we've got all those national anthems and we've got super pipe line which had some quite interesting music this is what for me sort of thing one of the first pieces of music that i really remember wanting to listen to yes just for it being a piece of music and i think that that made me play this game more than i actually wanted to yes you know and i would just quite often just leave myself in a position of safety so i could listen to the tune it's not it's not incredibly long it's not like hubbard's later pieces which would meander and go all over the place this is quite a chirpy upbeat bouncy tune but it's it's a proper tune you know it's it's a piece of music to actually listen to and i think it's a real example sort of thing where the musicians that started to come through and i do call them musicians because they are they're not just you know they are musicians they, yeah they are you, you, you go away to your hubbards you've fallen to p 
people like that. They are musicians, and the the, the things they're bringing to this platform again were way in ex- way 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 in advance of anything else around at the time. Yes, and starting to sort of shape what we were starting to what we were expecting you could discuss Hubbard until the cows come home something and loads of people probably have something but this is a real good example of his music lifting a particularly slightly below average game way up Correct. To the point where he got a sizzler. Rob Hubbard was a professional musician before he started doing computer music. And mm-hmm. so for him, this is clearly, I think it's the first real music. I mean, I know he did Clumsy Carlin and Action Biker stuff, but this is actually, like you say, it's the first fully end-to-end music with a theme that's directly linked to the game. So it's so it's got that kind of boing and spring and it's very cleverly worked in. And, and it adds so much to the game because of that, because yeah. it fits so well that it makes the game feel faster and more buoyant and more fun. It just does because of that. Yes. You t- if you take that, turn the sound off and that game is mediocre at best. You mm-hmm. add that sound and Zap spotted that as well. They gave it 98% for its sound. And no, basically saying this is this as good as it gets. This was as, as good as it got then. It gets better. But uh, that an early example of, of really great, how exactly as you described, you know, a mediocre game made great by one piece of music makes a big difference if it's what if you go back to uh, what we said about Roland Rat Race and Galway because that that game wandering around sewers is pretty dull but there's some bits of music in there that you want to yeah. listen to and hear and, and makes you want to play the damn things there were these guys back then that could force you to play <laughs> what were really really bad games and there's another game that we will review at some point which is Knuckle Busters god awful but Christ I played a lot of that but th- th- this thing on a spring sort of thing is it's, it's a strange one sort of thing because it's a nice vibe to it but it's so bloody frustrating and, and, and unenjoyable to play there's no there's no real fun to it which is a shame because you want to like it because you want to listen to the tune more and you want to you want to you know you want to think oh this could be quite nice but again it suffers from that no we're just going to make it rock hard the music maketh the game and that particular one and it isn't Mm. going to be the isolated incident we're going to come across this more and more especially with rob hubbard who had a bit of a record of doing that but that said average game up too hard but very interesting music average game lifted up by the music and we will see that as you say a hell of a lot more Yes, absolutely. Not in the next game, though. No. Which is strange, actually, because it should have a great piece of music. (laughs) Talking about shooting fish in a barrel, this should be pretty simple, really, because we're going to talk about Roger Moore's brown coat adventure. (laughs) <laughs> otherwise known as that's what it's known as by the way in uh, some countries uh, we know it as a view to a kill the making of a port of a game of a, of a Bond film I, I don't know if they, was this the first Bond film ported yeah that's a good question actually it might very well be I don't remember any others I don't remember like Live and Let Die or something I don't no, remember no. any game no. where I, I don't remember a game where I had to run I mean maybe Frogger where you had to run across uh, back to Valigators I'm just thinking <laughs> How many Bond movies were released in the early 80s? This is certainly one of them. I think it might very, it would probably most likely be the first, at least the first, yeah. you know, licensed, big license like this. Yeah, I think it's the first, and it's not a great way to start. No, it is not. My first comment on this is what the hell is that speech? We've had some really good speech this issue, and then we had this, and we'll yeah. get some other worse stuff later on, sort of thing. But I can't, what does it say? I can't remember something about Bond or something about. 007 or something yeah, it's crap it's some muffling incom- you know, incoherent nonsense Yeah, it's really bad there's three games in this so View to a Kill basically follows very loosely follows the plot of the, of the film and the fact that the first thing you have to do is drive around Paris chasing Mayday as she parachutes off the Eiffel Tower which you do in the, in the game it's really rubbish what it does have strangely enough <laughs> weirdly enough it's got a, a quite a nice 3D effect well you mean that when you're driving around Paris aka a brick maze I put Paris has never looked so brown. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's very brown. I don't, God knows what it is. It's a boring game of following a parachute, which goes round and round and round, and you just end up driving round. And, and it reminded me of Give My Regards yeah. to Broad Street and that that rubbish. It's you think of James Bond and what you don't think is driving because you've got to wait for this parachute, and this parachute takes its time. In which time you're just left driving around featureless streets, doing <laughs> nothing. Did you get beyond this section? Yes. I did. I got past the the blatant, awful 3D monster maze variant <laughs> that was uh, the first car game, I guess. Because mm-hmm. you could control it either by, by trying to sort of look through the viewpoint of a car with the steering wheel at what was essentially brick walls, or you could stare it from the overhead view. The next one after that, you was in a mine, and you had to find and defuse a bomb. And guess what? You were wandering around a mine, picking up and collecting things. I remember that in the film, actually. And you could fall, <laughs> you could seem to fall, you came to fall down a lot in that and it was just it was awful really badly drawn sprites really bad animation as you can imagine and you had this really weird control system where you could stop pick things up and move them around and sort of store them and and it stops you in your tracks and then you controlled the joystick to move move it left right between pick up drop use so it was kind of trying to be a bit graphic-y adventure didn't work at all in fact it made it almost impossible to know what way whether you could run or do what you were doing there was no real enemies to speak of that i remember other than your own inability to walk consistently without falling off things or jump and then the level after that was the same it was the same except this time you were in a house in like a building like a hotel i think trying to sneak around and find things and do stuff was this the bit where the hotel's on fire yeah exactly the same so it's you're playing essentially playing out scenes from the film not even the great scenes and there's not that many in that film to choose from so you know thankfully they didn't try and do some kind of butterfly on a stick death simulation that's what happens (laughs) in that i mean i feel for the game designers because this hasn't got great material to begin with but you're james bond so even if it was just james bond running and shooting people that would be more preferable, you know, or even if they just turned out you know, the reverse spy hunter and just had James Bond being chased by stuff. But this is just a complete misfire. It's like they went for thinking, oh, we'll, we'll try and do something a bit different. You know, we won't go for the typical stuff, but then whatever they tried just didn't work in any way, shape or form. Yeah, absolutely. Awful rendition of the music, awful sound yeah. effects in it. Controls were just stupid and, and actually frustrating at all levels. Topped and tailed with that awful opening sequence when you, your hopes, hopes are high, when the James Bond target appears, then they sink mm. beyond oblivion when the stick man with a sandwich in his hand <laughs> struts into the middle. And then it sort of shuffles a little bit from left to right as opposed to doing the James Bond proper thing. And you think, there's something not right about this. Something's gone wrong. And then after that... <laughs> The game starts and you think, oh, I can see where this has gone wrong because either these people have never watched this movie or they've had it described to them and this is the best <laughs> they could come up with. If anything, I think they've been led down on an ambitious road to create too much because mm. it doesn't. you don't have to try hard to make a James Bond game or you shouldn't have to try hard. And let's face it, there's no way they were ever going to be able to and then just make the sprite brown. It doesn't have to look like that. And if it's going to be <laughs> Roger Moore, it may as well. But I mean, you think of all the car chases, all of the famous stunts that are in those James Bond films because there's always going to be a car chase in a Bond movie, always, at mm. least once so even if you just made a game of that it would be better than this but they didn't yes, they tried to make it multi-level multi-game play the scenes for him and what you end up doing is after the weird driving sequence at the beginning after that level you just end up wandering around in a maze-like environment picking up stuff and collecting stuff that's vaguely bond related because it's got the bond music in the background but it could be any game any player mm-hmm. how that 
ties into View to a Kill. That has to be explained to you in the sort of the preamble of the level. If you'd even if you'd seen the movie, you would struggle to say, well, I don't remember this part of this <laughs> game. I don't remember in the movie this happening where he just kept falling off platforms and staggering around. And because when you fall, he, he sort of prays. He sort of goes on his hands and knees and prays as part of the weird animation. So if that was in the movie, it would just be him falling off tables a lot and then praying every two seconds and not doing anything and just taking stuff out of drawers and putting it back in and taking it out and putting it back in. And, and then, you know, it's just a nonsense. And I think it's such a misfire. It's a wonder that they ever attempted any more Bond games and yet they do. They do. Which is good, actually, because we've got Goldeneye. Yeah, that, I mean, way later, thankfully, 3D technology <laughs> yeah. comes to save the day. But these this early 2D stuff, it's just, it was a license that's too big, too much, and they tried to take on too much. And if they'd have actually concentrated their efforts on one bit of game and made that good, it'd have been fine. But, they, you know, essentially what you've got there is two and a half games because you've got the Gracie game top down, God ever knows what that is. And then you've also got the collect all bits as well. It's not like you can't do the sort of portmanteau style game because Beachhead 2 shows you can do that. Yes. And if you could quite easily th- think of something like Beachhead 2 with a bit of sort of jiggery-pokery and moving around sort of thing, some running and shooting and jumping and change that around, you can do that sort of enjoyable portmanteau style game. Just this ain't it. And don't tell me that you can't do espionage games on the C64 because as we'll see later, that can easily be done. So oh, if, you, if, if you yeah. really want to do one, you could. But mm-hmm. they went down though trying to emulate an action movie on a 8-bit computer with 64k it ain't going to be easy to do that with the with the best will in the world you know you're gonna to have to scale that ambition right back and um, and so they did and turned and it was also clearly in the hands of people that were overwhelmed with the material i think and that can happen you know you could be given a project mm-hmm. and be given so much stuff to go with that project you, you don't know where to really start it's like being lost in it lost in a bit of a maze of stuff and i don't think they knew really where to turn with it and it's a shit film anyway yeah it's sort of rubbish <laughs> you know so let's not beat around the bush you're working with a turd to start with yeah it is so we don't like view to a kill we didn't like the film we don't like the game it was a view to a switch for me the off switch <laughs> let's move on then to our last game for this part Uh, Stop the Express. This is not... I, I got this confused with Suicide Express, but Stop the Express is something very different. Yes, somebody should have stopped the Express is what I've put down. It, it states in the reviews, it's a, it's a year-old Spectrum conversion, and by God, does that show. Yep. Rubbish controls, really awkward controls. Why a different button to jump left and jump right? Oh. Just have me jump in the direction I'm going. It's stupid. You are some kind of slightly anime-stylish, I don't know, guy on top of a train, and you're moving left to right, and there's two teddy boys who are coming after you throwing knives at you randomly. And you have to jump and, and duck and don't jump into gaps. things that go across the train, the gaps, whatever. And that's it, really. I don't know. I got mm. to about five cats in and got killed. And I was like, oh, this is... My, my, my note is it's just a whiff of old game design and just not interesting. Yeah. It shows that this is a year old. You know, when we're, when we're looking at games like Exploding Fist and Beachhead 2, this is like a, a year at this point is a huge gap. It, it looks like exactly what it is. It may have been okay at the time, but for 1985 Commodore 64 owners, when you can go play Wave the Exploding Fist... Well, no, what the I hell? absolutely agree. I mean, my, I'd written badly drawn sprites, run across a badly drawn train, um, scrolling badly, and then meet death at the hands of badly drawn enemies with badly drawn daggers. Badly drawn. <laughs> Because that's what it was. It was just like you say. It was just it was out of place, out of time, just a nonsense. When you start to see the games like the quality of Way Exploding Fist, it makes these just an embarrassment. There was yes, a time it when it might have passed. You might have got away with that in 1983 or maybe it pushed 1984 as you're aiming towards the end of 1985. Sorry, oh, yeah. but someone needed to stop that express before it even got released in my book. This probably had some um, cachet from its Spectrum release and probably some goodwill. And I thought, yeah, quick cash import to the C64. Just throw it out. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Yeah, we don't like that. There you go. That, so that rounds up our 
view the games for this part. We've got obviously more in the next part. What we're going to look at now uh, is just a quick look at a couple of crap verts to round off the this this part. We've already reviewed this game. We didn't like it, and we don't like the advert. And that advert is Jack Charlton's match fishing. It does win the how many pictures of Jack Charlton can you get in one advert board. <laughs> <laughs> Hands down wins that. I mean, it's one, two, three in an alligator, and I'm not sure if he's actually in that alligator suit. I do like the tagline for it, which is unique multiplayer action. I mean, it is unique. None of them have got their hand under the table, which I'm a bit concerned about. But the word action, don't think the word action no. is anywhere near this. So this advert has Jack at the top in his flat cap, looking like Jack. And then it has a, the one screen from the game that's of any use, yeah. which has got the numbers on. All set round the table is a nuclear family with Jack peering over the top of them. And then again, you know, we've got the information for the game. And then at the bottom, there's another picture of Jack, which is the same as the one at the top, just we've got more of it. So they only had one picture of him and it says all the excitement of a real mat fishing match and you don't have to get your feet wet I'm guessing that's fly fishing <laughs> that he's talking about which isn't actually what you do in this game at all you... no there's also I think an extensive quote from underneath that you know it, 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 it then goes on to extol his values for the game and I believe match fishing brings a whole new meaning to blah blah and yeah and it's like it doesn't up to eight players can all stare at their screen simultaneously. We can all do that anyway. We don't need a fishing game to do that. There is one line I would like to just call out, which is uh, combining the power of the computer, its memory and speed of action with the skill and excitement of Britain's most popular outdoor participation sport. Pa- outdoor participation sport? What about football? Yeah, I, it's a bit I mean, of a I'd, grand I'd rather... claim. <laughs> Or, ten- or anything. People playing golf, anything. And, and this is a guy that managed football teams, right? So he's got a lot of experience mm-hmm. in the idea of outdoor participation sports that aren't fishing. How participatory is this sport? Because aren't you just sat on your own um, <laughs> with a fishing <laughs> rod? I don't think it's... It's not like you all sit on the same peg with the rods going in eight different directions. You know, you have to be separated apart. You can't shout and yell at each other or because that would disturb the fish, I would imagine. It would scare away the fish, yeah. Exactly, so... I also take umbrage at the its memory and speed of action. This is written in basic and there's no speed in this game. And again, as again, they use the word action. I mean, action implies action. <laughs> there is no action in this well, game. there isn't. But you know what? It also explains the experience of computers that Jack Charlton had up to that point, which was clearly 0.0. <laughs> Probably. I, I don't know anything about Jack Charlton, but for him to come out with such a soliloquy about how amazing it is would, would mean that perhaps he was blown away by what he saw at the time, which is fair. If he'd never seen anything like that, for him to see a graphical representation of a pond and people fishing around it and then up to eight people sat around a tiny Commodore 64 punching the keyboard. I'm also curious as well sort of thing about where the hell they got that blue joystick from. That and why Alan Titchmarsh is holding it because <laughs> I'm sure that's him. I'm pretty certain that's Alan Titchmarsh. Young Alan Titchmarsh right there. It very well might be. Yeah, and you know what? Little Bobby, no joystick there with his blonde hair. He's the milkman's. There's no doubt about that, that one. He's, you know... <laughs> <laughs> in that little, in that little nuclear family, is the odd one out right there. Yeah, that was that was where the unique multiplayer action came from. That's it. And um, as usual, when you see the pictures, they're just—I think it's just—you can't quite see it there. But I'm reasonably sure there's no power supply in that computer. They're all enjoying there but there you go the next one is a cornucopia of (laughs) madness that is the dynamite dan advert watch out it's dynamite dan (laughs) there's some spacing issues here just space (laughs) issues but it's one of those you don't know where to look (laughs) no i don't know which character on that screen out of the two is dynamite i guess it's the guy with the dynamite in his hand but there's for some reason there's a viking in the top left hand corner there's a giant face the guy's face, by the way, that's a weirdly similar image to Zor of the Kodan Armada from <laughs> The Last Starfighter. 
Good lord, that's a pull. It looks a lot like him. I have to say, it's and very you know similar. What? That's, the, that's the second time Last Starfighter has been mentioned on this podcast. I think it's uh, two times too many, maybe. But I don't get what that game is. It's it's weird, isn't it? Adverts really odd. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a strangely sort of sexual statue in the bottom left uh, for no reason that I can make out. There's a Genghis Khan type character in the top left with his massive head in comparison to any other part of his body. Why do I feel like this is just a rip off? It looks looking at those screens. This has got a horrible Jet Set Willy Manic Miner vibe about it. Oh, absolutely. So I, I think bet it is one of those. Was, yeah. yeah, it is. You can see from the screenshots and, you know, at least it got a, you know, it was a crash smash, so obviously the crash liked it. Um, each screen has something remarkably and horribly difficult puzzles. Oh, that's, that sells it. Remarkable and horrible in the same sentence. Uh. So this, like, Dynamite Dad is not just another minor surrogate uh-huh. and is at least as essential to your collection. That was Popular Computing Weekly. Did Popular Computing Weekly, PC Weekly, they were saying stuff about Tim, Tim Loves Cricket, weren't they? Yes, they did. Um, I think they did. It was certainly, you know what, there's no way. When the, when, the, <laughs> when the screens of the games are smaller than the images, you know, if you get, you know, if it's got such beautifully animated and wonderful graphics, this game, it says at the start of this, what makes this game is the graphics. And on the advert, they're a tiny little screen, so you can't really see them. I'm also confused by the size of that glass yes. in the middle. It's massive. That glass is the size of his, the guy's legs. It is, and you know what this game is. You know, you don't need to see the screens. If you describe that to me, I'd say, I bet this is a game where you've got loads of random objects going up and down or left and right on platforms, and you have to try and pick up things in really difficult difficult and awkward to get to places while not hitting any of those things. And maybe there's probably a playoff on this where you get a stick of dynamite that you can blow things up with. Boom, and you know, and yeah. tip it, that does come off because obviously you bounce off levels and there's zap. You know, everything that's probably in that game is probably on that screen. Just it doesn't look like that. <laughs> no, no, it really doesn't. And why not? Why not? If you've got a game called Dynamite Dan, why would you not make the eye in Dynamite a stick of dynamite? I mean, come on, graphic design people, let's just roll this back. I know 1985 was a tough year in the world of graphic design, but just make the eye a stick of dynamite, damn it! It's Dynamite Dan. Yeah, I don't like the space in between it and Dynamite Dan, which is <laughs> ones at the top and then ones right down the bottom. Yes. I, I can't be doing with it. Horrible use of uh, a sans serif font and the word for the use of Helvetica in an advert goes to. <laughs> Dynamite Dan. Dynamite Dan. Watch out, it's... The next one, this is just to quickly round up. This isn't an actual advert. This was a drawing for a type it in own adventure thing in CMBG. And it's for a game called Labyrinth, I think it was. Essentially, it looks like some kind of sword, you know, a minotaur chasing around. And I just wanted to mention it for Improper Shadows. (laughs) Yeah. That guy looks really, really happy to see that minotaur. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, these adverts are going to be on the website, (laughs) so you can check them out. But yes, he's very pleased to see that minotaur. (laughs) Essentially, there's... There's a, there's a guy walking into towards the screen where a minotaur is hiding behind a corner and he's holding his sword out. The lighting is coming from the side and it's obviously caught the sword at, uh, and him. At, uh, I don't know because his front shadow, his front foot sort of thing is completely missing. Uh, I, oh no, so, <laughs> unless that's straight forward. But the sword is, um, so we say, just, you know, hip height poking out forward. The shadow looks horribly, horribly yes. wrong. I mean, think so looking at that, that the minotaur, when he sees that, is going to be thinking he's going <laughs> he's going to poke him with his different kind of dagger, I think. <laughs> So uh, yeah. <laughs> no wonder he's no wonder he's hiding around that corner. He saw him coming. He's that isn't that he's hiding to get him. He's just staying out of the way. These warriors come into the maze with in massive erections. I'm not I'm not dealing with that. Because the other thing is as well is that the guy's holding <laughs> his helmet, which is is causing a slight bulge in the. <laughs> 
just below the sword. Yes. <laughs> so essentially, we just we just got cock and balls. <laughs> got, uh, yeah, man in maze with the cock and balls, and then you've got the the minotaur hiding around the corner. And I have to say, looking a little bit worried more than more than. <laughs> that's not a minotaur looking ready to pounce and devour somebody no. and beat them up. That's somebody <laughs> going, "I'm staying out of here." That's that. No one wants to deal with that. Reflection of that shadow, I think. Theseus, Theseus cannot come in here with an Ardon. Get out. <laughs> Get out of my maze. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. Anyway, on that note, I think we'll finish. So, yes, that's the end, of <laughs> the end of part one. We will be back next week with part two. This week, we have looked at... What have we looked at? We've looked at Beachhead 2, Clumsy Colin Action Biker, Jack Charlton's Match Fishing, Rocky Horror Show, Nutcracker, Wade Exploding Fist, Thing on a Spring, A View to a Kill, and Stop the Express. Next part, we've got the rest of our look at August 1985. Uh, we'll be looking at at Zap's gold medal, which was given to the adaptation of Frederick Forsyth's The Fourth Protocol. We'll be looking at Jump Jet, Confusion, Jet Set Willy 2, and the third in the international series of sports, International Tennis. Uh, all that on more coming up next week in the next edition of Zapped to the Past. Thanks for listening. I've been Adrian Mills. I've been Graham Reddings. And we'll catch you next week. Goodbye. Sayonara. <laughs> Sayonara. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Zap to the Past podcast. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the world of Commodore 64 games, as well as the music, sights, sounds and news from around the 1980s, driven, of course, by the issue of Zap 64 magazine published at the time. We will be back next week with another podcast, so do please join us. Until then, please head over to zaptothepast.com to sign up to our email list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. We will also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram under Zap to the Past. The Zap to the Past podcast is written and produced by Adrian Mills and Graham Raddings and recorded at Flaky Bits 2.0 Studio. All opinions expressed are those of the writers and while we indeed love Zap64 magazine, the Zap to the Past podcast is not affiliated with it in any way. Stay safe and see you next time.